Hello, this is the UCLA Housing Voice podcast, and I'm your host, Shane Phillips. Each episode, we discuss a different housing research paper with its author to better understand how we can make our cities more affordable and more equitable places to live. Our guest this week is Dr. Dinora Gonzalez of Universidad Iberoamericana in Tijuana, and my co-host is Pavo Monkinen. Today, we're talking about housing policy in Mexico and lessons from their experience with mass production and suburbanization over the past few decades. Dr. Gonzalez's research takes a closer look at what Pavo described in his dissertation as Mexico's housing transition, a shift from mostly urban, self-built, incremental housing production and upgrading to a more standardized, sprawling, quote-unquote, modern approach to development. The government catalyzed this shift with the creation of a semi-public mortgage program that guaranteed demand for developers, similar to what FHA-backed loans did for the U.S. in previous generations. It led to a huge boom in suburban housing development, with a large share of homes affordable to low-income households, but it also exacerbated inequalities in access to jobs, schools, hospitals, and other basic needs. Here we're focused on the experience of Tijuana, right on the U.S.-Mexico border, and the strategies that developers used to reduce production costs so they could be eligible for that government-backed mortgage program. Dinora's research has a lot to tell us about how production costs affect decisions about housing design, location, and price, how standardization and better business models may lead to greater productivity in the construction sector, and how governments can structure markets for more socially beneficial outcomes. The Housing Voice podcast is a production of the UCLA Lewis Center for Regional Policy Studies, and we receive production support from Claudia Bustamante, Olivia Arena, and Hannah Barlow. As a reminder, you can now earn AICP credit for listening to the show. Just go to the APA Credit Maintenance webpage and search for UCLA Housing Voice podcast. If you want to help the show, please give us a five-star rating and a review. And if you have any feedback or show ideas, you can email me at shanephillips at ucla.edu. Let's get to our conversation with Dr. Gonzalez. Our guest this week is Dinora Gonzalez, lecturer at Universidad Iberoamericana in Tijuana and a recent postdoctoral fellow here at UCLA. We have her on to talk about suburbanization and mass-produced housing in Mexico, and also hopefully some discussion of Mexican housing policy more generally, since it's a topic we've yet to cover. And uh, of course, Mexico is our very close neighbor to the South. Dinora, thanks for joining us and welcome to the Housing Voice podcast. Thank you, Shane. Thank you, Paul, for the invitation. Uh, thank you to the UCLA Latin American Cities Initiative for fostering uh, the understanding of housing in Mexico and Latin America. And you heard there, Pavo is our co-host today. Welcome, Pavo. Hey, how's it going? Thanks. I'm super excited to talk to Dinora about this cool paper. So to start, as we always do, we're going to be talking about Tijuana specifically today. So Dinora, take us on a tour. If we were visiting, where would you want to show us around? Oh, so many places. Um, Well, Tijuana, first, I will have to say that this is a city I was born and raised. So it's really in, in my veins. Uh, So I will try to give you my impression of the city. You probably think you know it because maybe you're part of the millions of visitors that come to the city on business or tourism, or you might have uh, made up your mind of it because you see the city constantly in the news, right? Uh, 
So Tijuana sits along the U.S.-Mexico border, and it's by far the largest city in, on the Mexican side. The city borders San Diego, and if you were to look like this at this satellite picture of it, you would see that it's almost a mass, a single mass, right? But we couldn't be more wrong. These are two different cities in two different countries with two very different social realities and economic realities, and they're divided by a wall, a limit, a line that over the years has gone from somewhat transparent to a more visible and tangible barrier. And you can see this when you come driving from L.A. or from San Diego. What first strikes you when you approach the border is the tightly built hillside, uh, this monumental Mexican flag waving in the middle of this myriad of different colored houses and buildings. And this is a very different picture from what you see in Southern California, where you have your beige suburbs and uniform development and uh, an orderly pattern. So, <laughs> yeah, that's the first impression. So when you cross the border, I would like to drive you through Avenida Internacional. And the first place I would definitely take you to is to the northernmost part of the country, which is Playas de Tijuana. This is a beach community that is located right next to Imperial Beach in San Diego. Babo is very familiar with this community. <laughs> he was, he was very <laughs> excited. I'm raising the roof here. Yeah, yeah. he's raising the roof. <laughs> yeah. Playas is a quaint suburb of mid to high income uh, community that, with a very beautiful view of the Pacific Ocean. But what makes this place really extraordinary is the border wall. Here is the physical barrier that divides the two countries, and it goes all the way into the Pacific Ocean. On the wall and in the public space surrounding it, you can see work from many artists who imprint the different migrant struggles that materialize in this border town. And I would also, if we were to stop here, I would tell you the stories of families who come to the wall from both sides of the border to reunite every so often with, with loved ones. So it's a pretty extraordinary, extraordinary place. And it helps you to understand a little bit of what the wall means for us. The wall for us is not something that just happened like six years ago when it became like the part of this political discourse. It's a barrier that we had, that we have lived with most of our lives. And we have seen it transform from this barbed wire fence to a steel sheet barrier that we had in the 90s to a vertical grade that we see now. So in order to understand Tijuana and its people, you really have to understand what the wall represents and what the border crossing represents. For many people, this is an impasse in their migration path. And we see daily the human tragedy that materializes here in this town. And, well, after seeing the wall and after seeing the physical border crossings, the second place I would take you to is to, the, to downtown, our bustling downtown. Here you would have your pick of gourmet restaurants, artisanal breweries. As you can see, I'm very partial to eating and drinking. 
and I would take you to Avenida Revolución, our iconic street where bars and cantinas opened up during Prohibition and is now part of our historic downtown. You would have to eat a Caesar salad at the hotel where it was invented. And also, I would have to take you down to our Zona Rio, which is the most modern financial district. You can eat some Bahamed cuisine that combines deliciously with our local wine. And we can have our pick of street food, tortas, tacos, seafood, you name it. It's all here and it's all super delicious. All of these activities show you a picture of a vibrant, economically diversified city with a dynamic that is very much intertwined with the U.S. and very much dependent on these institutional and economic differences between the U.S. and Mexico. And so maybe this gives you a different picture of what you thought Tijuana was. Yeah, I really appreciate that. I think it's helpful for maybe dispelling some stereotypes that folks have or might have. And I think some of what we're going to be talking about might might do that a little bit more as well. And we could do a whole we could do a whole podcast about Playas de Tijuana and how <laughs> the transformation of it over the last, you know, 10, 15 years has really been fast. I mean, like as this case study of nimbyism slash, you know, the, 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 where a place where nimbyism may be justified in some ways because of the lack of access out of the neighborhood because of the hills and the way the construction has been happening over recent years. I think it's a, it's a really interesting place. So the name of the article that we're talking about today is Policy-Induced Suburbanization, Mass-Produced Housing, and Location Choices in Tijuana, Mexico. And it was published just this year in the journal Housing Policy Debate. And uh, just to give a little background, since Pavo has worked on this stuff for a long time, the process of urbanization in, in Mexico and how this has all happened over time, Pavo, do you want to give some of that background and then we can kind of turn it over to Dinora for a few questions? Sure. Yeah. And I'm, I'm super excited to talk about this paper because the focus on developers and the development process, I think, is, is very new and important in this, in this area of research. But so Mexico's urbanization throughout most of the 20th century was characterized by what's often called self-built or self-help housing, which is kind of this incremental development of housing by households without housing finance. And that really shapes how cities expand in this slower, low-density process with a lot of vacant lots. But then in the early 90s, with a lot of other transformations that were happening in the, in the federal level in Mexico, the government turned what had been a housing fund that directly built housing and allocated kind of through unions into a mortgage bank and expanded the activities of that mortgage bank very significantly, especially after the financial crisis in 1994. And this really kind of quote unquote modernized the housing development process and created kind of a boom in large scale private sector development of, of suburban housing. And so in my dissertation, I call this the housing transition. And I've studied kind of how this rapid expansion and boom in suburban housing development transformed cities kind of at a macro level in terms of segregation or or vacancy or kind of urban form. But I think Denora's paper delving into kind of the development process really has a lot of potential to impact policy and kind of give us a greater understanding. Um, so looking at how suburban developers choose where to build, what influences their kind of decisions in the production process. And so we'll, we'll, we'll get into that. So uh, Dinora, before we get to, to your paper, maybe um, 
Do you want to add anything to this primer on Mexico's housing policy recently or kind of, I don't know, discuss the similarities you see between Mexico and the U.S. in terms of suburban development? I think you gave a pretty good picture of uh, of what public policy was um, and how uh, these sudden mortgage influx really stimulated the construction industry and uh, it stimulated it to produce a lot of homes in some way, in the same way that it did all all that time ago in the U.S. when when you have had all this uh, all this mortgage and this suburbanization, right? I think both in the U.S. and in Mexico, you saw that all this sudden demand for housing stimulated the construction industry, and the housing developers started to arise. And these were firms specializing in home building, right? And you also see a whole sorts of industry innovations, such as prefabricated elements that you would use for home building. You saw that home design started to be much more modulated. Uh, Industry standards were set. Uh, Efficiencies within construction started to become important. And the firms specializing in various components of the construction projects. Those Those are things that happened in in Mexico and the United States. And that's why we can see that the built space have some similarities, right? You have that uh, both in the United States and Mexico, suburbanization is comprised of these uh, large developments with a lot of homes uh, because they were built where land prices were low and this led to suburban sprawl. But also you have that the use of prefabricated components and building in large scales gave us these this homogeneous landscape. Everything looks kind of like the same, mm-hmm. right? And uh, you have these similarities, but here you have the most important difference is, is that related to income. The person buying the home in Mexico has significantly less income. Mexico is a country where around 40% of the population lives be- below the poverty line. And right now, if you to give you a better picture of this, we can talk about minimum wage. Right now, it's about $9 a day. Um, and However, for a maquiladora worker, which is the average industrial worker here in, in the city of Tijuana, for example, it, the, the average maquiladora worker is making around 300 to $500 a month, approximately. So they would be making 4000 to $600 a year, which is a salary. This is a salary above minimum wage. But when you compare this to the U.S. salary, which is around 32000 in a year for an industrial worker, you get a sense of how much of a home that a low-income worker can purchase with such a restricted salary. Right. And I, I wonder if, I mean, I think to me one of the big differences is that, like you say, the target population for this program. And I, I like in your paper, I think you mentioned how the federal government in the early 90s convened all these developers and said, look, 
we need to build houses that are affordable to this population group, and that means $25,000 or something, right? And so the developers responded with, I mean, if you compare it to the Levittown housing back in the day in the U.S., you know, the lots are much, much, much smaller, and the houses are much, much, much smaller, right? So the Levittown lots, I just looked it up, it's, they're 7,000 square feet. And in, you know, the, the early stage uh, Infonavit housing in, in Mexico, it's, you know, 600 square feet or 700 square feet, right? So the kind of the, the size of the housing units and the lots is so much smaller because the original intent was to be able to serve a population that was making so much less money than, than the way it developed in the U.S., Yes, and uh, that's that's one of the first uh, restrictions you have: the salary. How much of a house can you afford with uh, with this income? And uh, what developers came up with was, you know, we need to really pinch every single corner in order to economize and produce a home that can that that these people can afford. And it came to a home that would have to be bought around $20,000, $25,000. And you can imagine what size of a home it had to be for you to build it and, uh, and buy all the input, inputs for this type of a home. Out of curiosity... You know, thinking about because so much of this housing in this program is targeted toward low income households, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering how people in Mexico view developers um, and if they have the same sort of, you know, sort of villainous reputation that they often have in the in the U.S. Or if the fact that they're mostly building housing for low income households kind of changes how they're perceived there at all. Oh no! Well, you have to understand. <laughs> I didn't think it would. <laughs> no, <laughs> we differ on many things, but <laughs> yeah, but not on that. No, you have to understand that uh, the villainous perception of developers in Mexico is founded on events that had real social, very real social repercussions. Mm-hmm. Um, during the social housing boom, several researchers have documented bad practices like negligence, fraud in the housing industry, mostly in construction and financing. I, I, in, in the LA Times, you have uh, Richard Morosi writing this piece on developers, how developers sold houses with faulty construction and incomplete uh, developments that overall aggravated the already dire situation of low-income families who bought these tiny homes in suburban locations. Mm -hmm. But this perception of greed and bad practices is being, it seeps into how we conceptualize the whole housing debacle as academics, for example. I've found papers that interpret faulty construction or incomplete streets as a cost reduction strategy, which is not. It's just lousy business planning, lack of oversight from the company and the government. And uh, if you think about it as a business, if you deliver faulty goods, you will not compete for a long time. So it's just it's just bad business, right? And that kind of thinking can also fog how we understand what were really necessary cost reduction strategies like mass production, which sometimes is also interpreted as this greed-based strategy. Mm-hmm. 
it's not interpreted as a, a necessary action to produce that home affordable home, right? Mm -hmm. It's just a way to pad the profits of the developers is how it's interpreted. Yeah. Uh, so it does present us with this analytical confusion that tends to discard any analysis that focuses on production as unnecessary because everybody feels that the explanation for this decision is just plain greed. Mm. And the, the fact that developers are greedy doesn't help things, but it <laughs> yeah, does exactly. sometimes, you know, <laughs> makes people blame that rather than the structure of the program that was set up by the federal government, right? So the federal government is is asking for a low cost housing unit and you know even the most honest and upstart you know up upstanding developer is going to be able to only produce something that's of low cost right and so exactly. that you know the blame game in in this whole program has been interesting to see who's who blames who you know for 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 the problems yeah, and that what, what you say right there, Pablo, is really important because the government has strained as far away as it get, can get from housing facilitation through markets because it's so tainted, right? Mm -hmm. And it, and it has reduced subsidies and eliminated many of the programs associated with low income house building, home building, leaving housing provision totally to the market forces. And as a result, low income housing production has stalled to a halt. Very few companies in Mexico still build low-income housing, and there has been no notable policy intention on reactivating it. And the lack of government intervention in housing provision translates to fewer options and more expensive housing for lower-income families in the end. Just, just so I'm sure we're on the same page, are you talking about like this is what's going on right now, or this was kind of what was occurring before these reforms? No, this is what's going on right now. Right now, the government doesn't touch uh, low-income housing production through markets with a lot, 10-foot pole. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's been that way since, uh, well, subsidies have slowly declined since uh, 2008, and then you have had several reforms, but... Right now, there are very, very few companies that still build low-income housing in Mexico. Got it. And I guess it might be helpful to clarify, right? So the the, the mortgage bank that the government runs is, is a provident fund that's combined with a pension system, right? It's the fund for workers' housing, and that does the majority of mortgages. In the, and so, you know, that's it's a quasi-federal agency, and it has its own, you know... Uh, okay, so, it's, so, it's, so that's the distinction we're making here is this fund with the pension system and everything it it is doing a lot of production of housing for low-income households but it's not like formally a government entity right um, and, in and the, it's not operating with like government subsidies really so at, and at a large in scale the, right in the early 2000s they were they were funneling a lot of subsidies through these loans that the that the federal mortgage bank was issuing mm -hmm. um but now they do no longer do the subsidy combined with those loans in order to target kind of the lower income households but all formal salaried workers are, are members of this workers' housing fund. And so kind of they're lending out those contributions of, of salaried workers to salaried workers. Okay. Okay. So getting into the paper here a little bit more, the central question of your article is whether developers are choosing sites based on low land prices, choosing where to build based on the price of land, or on effectively on the overall size of land, which determines how many homes they can build in a single project and therefore 
affects the economies of scale that they can achieve while building. It's my understanding that, you know, part of why you're interested in this question is that a lot of these suburban developments are taking place in pretty accessible, inaccessible and segregated areas. And so, you know, we want to know why that's happening. But more specifically, I'm just curious for your response on, you know, why should researchers and advocates care about whether it's land prices or economies of scale that determine their location decisions? Why is that specific question important? Well, here we can return to the question of, is it greed or are these production imperatives of low-cost housing production, mm. right? Yeah. So we need to clarify the clearly the different effects that each one has. On the one hand, low-cost production imperatives come from having to build this $20,000, $25,000 home, right? And these... This amount has to cover construction costs, land costs, infrastructure, permits, administrative costs, construction financing costs. So just for you to picture this, I, I was reading yesterday that uh, a per, the, the whole permits, just the permits for a home in California, it, it's going to cost you $25,000 per home. So you need to build a home with what? you're just going to spend on permits on ca in California. Mm -hmm. So so here is where you need to grasp like the complexity of building this low-cost home. If you were to build today this a minimum size home, like those built for in the year 2000 to 2008, roughly around 355 square feet, you would spend just on concrete. Just on concrete, you would spend around $6,000. Yeah, I'm not talking about steel. I'm just talking about concrete. So imagine that you're a developer and you do Shane, very decent person, and you forecast your production for, for the year, maintaining that the price of concrete is going to be stable and also the price of steel and your primary building materials. So if anywhere Along the line, you encounter an increase in one of these materials, which is very common for construction inputs. It could throw your number offs and eat off your profits. So every efficiency in housing production counts, from the choice of construction technology, to the home's design, to the roads that you design, to the allotment of public spaces, to the ease of obtaining permits. So every single construction economy is going to count. And here is where the developer starts arranging production through cost reduction strategies in order to hit that target market of the $20,000 home or the $25,000 home where these mortgages were allocated. And the result was the semi-industrialized production of tiny suburban houses which under the best circumstances of Shane being the very decent developer he is, were where he oversaw construction quality and had complete streets and basic public services. These little tiny houses are still socially unjust because they are too small for a medium-sized family, because they're located in areas with, where there's no transportation, no goods or service provision, no schools, no hospitals. They're away from jobs, even. Mm -hmm. And you have these families clustered 
in developments with uh, where everyone is low income. So you can see that the size of the social problem that just these decisions, and I'm not talking about all of this uh bad lack of uh, the, the lack of supervision or the lack of streets i'm talking given that all things are within within the the best results that we can obtain from this uh type of uh, arranging our production mm -hmm. within within the constraints that you have and within the, the constraints that you have, you have. To achieve yeah yeah, you're still going to have very, very uh, inequitable social space. One other point that I was thinking about with this question is cheap land has always been seen for a long time as a kind of solution to housing problems in Latin America, right? Uh, access to cheap land for the urban poor has been a rallying cry for, for decades. Um, I think that if you think about urban sustainability, infill housing is extremely important. And so highlighting the role of economies of scale, I think, has important policy implications because, you know, if you can reduce costs with economies of scale in the infill context, right, that's kind of the dream um, of mass produced infill rather than just kind of continued expansion and making things inexpensive through through cheap land. Yeah. And is it maybe fair to say that, you know, this isn't really about like whether land prices or production costs are more important relative, you know, one is more important than the other, but really just identifying the ways in which both are important and both play mm -hmm. a, a really, you know, crucial role here. Okay. So construction, efficiency, productivity, basically how do we build housing less expensively at lower cost? Um, is a pretty hot topic, I think, in housing policy these days, at least in my circles. We've been reading a lot of uh, Brian Potter and his construction physics substack. But I feel like researchers like us aren't all that well equipped to study this stuff. If you're not out there doing the work day to day, you know, as a developer or a contractor, it does seem difficult to really understand the challenges that builders are facing. But just to give a big picture sense for why we care about this, Many industries have gotten a lot more productive over the decades. They're producing more or higher quality goods given a fixed amount of, of investment of time or money. Uh, I think a classic example of this is in electronics, where you can you know buy a 70-inch 4K OLED TV today for less than what it costs to buy a 40-inch CRT television a few decades ago. But that has not happened with construction at all. Productivity has been pretty much flat for a long time in the industry. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm referring here to U.S. trends, which I'm more familiar with, but I imagine it's not all that different elsewhere, uh, including Mexico. And when you pair that flat or even somewhat declining productivity in the construction industry with rising land costs, rising materials costs, and so on, it's just getting more and more expensive to build homes. Could you give us a quick primer on why it's been so hard to improve construction efficiency and some of the strategies that people, that developers, that contractors, governments have been using to try to get more housing out of the dollars we're spending building them? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, construction, uh, housing production overall is an activity that is uh, difficult to optimize. Like you said, it's not a TV or a computer. Products where technology evolves rapidly. Mm -hmm. And you can make them cheaper. And every, every time this, uh, there's a technological change, right? 
So, uh, for example, housing, it's not prone, easily prone to industrialization because it's a large good. So the sheer size makes, makes it difficult to industrialize. So you can maybe go for an industrialization of components, but then you have to bring them all over to the site and manually put them together. Mm-hmm. And so that makes it uh, additionally difficult. Right, so it's big and it's location specific. Yeah, yeah, it's big and it's location specific. And in addition, the location you have to you have to work on it, right? You have different activities that are specifically tailored to each project, such as site clearing, road grid design, infrastructure requirements. So this, all of this, makes uh, construction highly prone to unforeseen contingencies. Maybe the rain cycle extends a couple of months and it delays your project, or maybe you excavated and found a material that was not detected by the geophysical probing, and you need more time to figure out what the implications of it are, mm-hmm. just to give you an idea of the complexity of the construction process. And could you tell us a little bit about, so your paper, you're looking at two building technologies, one of which is a little more standardized or industrialized uh, than the other. So that one being reusable concrete casting. Could you tell us a little bit about the role that that has played in bringing down costs and maybe contrast that with this other technology uh, construction approach, which is the block technology? Sure. Uh, And this, so technology innovation is something that is very important to uh, to every industry, right? And uh, I, we've, we've been talking about how it has been difficult to innovate for the construction industry. Uh, practically, we've been using brick and mortar for how many years? I mean, hundreds, mm-hmm. thousands of years, right? And the way that we build has changed very little. And this technological change in Mexico, uh, the use of concrete casting, came only when you kind of controlled some of these structural restrictions that impede technological change. And I'm talking about guaranteeing demand. When the government got all of these developers together and told them, okay, guys, you have to produce this home at this price, and, and we are going to guarantee you these mortgages. Mm-hmm. You're going to have the mortgage. And so the target, the target buyer became not the person, but the mortgage, right? They had to build something that, can, that could be bought with that mortgage. So they started scrambling and trying to figure things out and innovating. And for example, Heo, which is one of the largest uh, housing companies in Mexico, they developed a system where uh, blocks, they used blocks, but they were thinner and they would, uh, they would need uh, less uh, steel reinforcement. And so that way they, they could cut costs, right? But the winning, the winning innovation overall was these houses that were built with concrete casings because uh, you would have this cast, this really large cast 
where we do you would do some some setup, setting up uh, installations like uh, electric installations, uh, plumbing installations, but then you would just come up and with your concrete machinery and uh, and build a house in a day instead of a week. Does it work like where you basically just set up the the molding or whatever you want to call it, the cast, and then you know do the the wiring or whatever you have to do? Or maybe that comes after, but you just basically in a single pour of concrete, you just fill in the whole thing and it's all just kind of one big structure um, and that saves you time? Yes. Okay. And that saves you really uh, a lot of time. It's uh... it's like 3D printing, but pouring concrete into a metal mold. <laughs> so, yeah, so you, you, you could really uh, cut times, not even in half. I mean, it, it would be really fast. And this only came about because you didn't have to think that maybe those hundred houses wouldn't be sold at the end of the day, right? Because you knew those 100 houses, 1,000 houses were already assigned with a mortgage. Right. I don't know if, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. I mean, that, you know, my, my father-in-law is an architect in, in Tijuana and he did these houses that have like a metal structure with drywall and insulation, which was a very different style of construction technology, and he could not get bank financing for them, right? So I think that this idea of innovation being stymied by financing or being promoted by financing is extremely important to think about. Yeah, I mean, I think that even applies, it definitely applies here in the US in a lot of different contexts, but like one that we always talk about is parking. And, you know, you can have a city or state change its policy and say you don't have to build parking anymore when you build a new development. But a lot of developers will say, like, well, we don't really even want to build the parking, but our lenders require it of us. Right. Because they don't believe that if we build a building with no parking or limited parking, that there's going to be the demand for it. So, yeah, having that guaranteed demand, I can see why that really makes a difference. So, so what did you actually find? We're, we're getting to this very late, but what were the findings of this research, you know, between land prices and, uh, you know, kind of the overall law area and this opportunity for economies of scale? What was, what was really the, the deciding factor here? Or what role did each of those two uh, things play? And, and maybe, you know, you can kind of mention how the economies of scale differed between the block technology approach versus the, the concrete casting approach? Well, uh, well, we can first talk about, about technology, right? Because uh, the concrete casting approach requires like this large investment that can only play a payoff if you build in volume. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, uh, if you are going to build just like a few houses, why buy all this? these concrete uh, casts and set up all your production. So, for example, one casting system can be used to build around 1,500 homes or maybe even 1,700. So you can imagine how much you have to build in order to get your money's worth. So I found uh, that you did get scale economies from building all that uh, the more you build. I think the idea here might be like, you know, and I'm just throwing out completely wrong numbers, but just for illustrative purposes, if it costs you, say, $10,000 to build the cast, or let's say $100,000 to build the cast, 
but it lets you save a thousand dollars on each building then if you're only building 50 units you've spent a hundred thousand dollars on this cast and you've only saved fifty thousand but if you build 500 you spent a hundred thousand dollars on that cast but you saved five hundred thousand and so that's where the the scale of economy is and you have to cross some threshold before it actually starts saving you money exactly and so you would have to build a lot of houses for it to be really an economical choice Mm-hmm. On the other hand, building with bricks, you don't see that uh, that advantage, right? It's not that it's uh, it's not that you don't get economies from building a lot of homes because you 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 might have you know you, you get economies from just doing a one big housing development permit, or maybe by just setting up your selling point in one place, but they're not that significant. Yeah. They're, they're not uh, construction economies. Right. You know, they're, they're, they're not construction scale economies because you still have to do the brick and mortar and you still have to manually construct every home. Right. And the land prices are pretty low and the the government's pretty accommodating with the permitting, it sounds like. So really the the construction materials and labor are the the very large largest share of the cost. Yeah. And that's where you need to save money if you can. Yeah, exactly. I would love to have you just mention the a little bit about the methodology and how you kind of what data did you use to test the hypothesis about scale economies? So for uh, this analysis, I used construction budgets from uh, around... Uh, 23 construction developments and around 89 uh, prototypes of houses. Mm. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a rare find, right? I mean, the ability to actually analyze project cost data is, is rare in this research field. Yeah, developers are not very open with this stuff <laughs> for some reason. I feel like they think that their their data is all proprietary, that they're doing something very different than their competitors, but I'm not really <laughs> sure yeah. that that's the case. So the case study in this paper, as we've talked about, is Tijuana, and the city has seen incredible growth over the past several decades. It grew 5% per year from 1990 to 2000 to 1.2 million residents. And then over the next 15 years, this public mortgage lender issued more than 200,000 mortgage loans to Tijuana households, and the population today is over 2.2 million. So it's almost doubled in just over 20 years. The vast majority of these homes are being built in suburban developments on large tracts of land, fairly distant from the urban core. We've talked a little bit about this already, but could you give us a little bit more of a picture of what these mass-produced suburban developments look like? Just, you know, some basics in terms of the size of the lots, the square footage of the buildings. Are they attached? Are they detached? And just an idea of how this compares to the the sort of Levittown style or the McMansion sprawl developments you see uh, here in the U.S. Okay, well, you have to picture, again, I'm going back to the tiny home. The minimum, minimum size or the smallest that was built was around 355 square feet up to like 474 square feet. So so the biggest ones are usually only about 500 at most. At square feet. most. Wow. Yes, okay. at most. Um, they have one bedroom. It's like a teeny tiny New York apartment, but in the middle of nowhere. 
it's uh, kind of like uh, uh, that way I can describe it. Uh, it's one bedroom, a room that a uh, room that holds a kitchen, dining, living area, and a bathroom. In the back, you have a tiny service patio. You don't have a backyard. Mm. And just enough to fit a laundry sink. And in the front of the house, you have a parking space and a little small area for, for plants. That was one of the best uh, features of these things is the parking pad included for social interest housing. And Eric Guerra, I'm sure you've, you know his work. You know Eric Guerra has written about uh-huh. parking and social interest housing developments in the suburbs. Yeah, I mean, parking, the, the parking space was not even enough to, uh, for, to fit a small car and open all the doors. I mean, you have, <laughs> we, you would have trouble opening. You could open probably one or have some roof. No, but Climb it, out it was back. really small. It is really small. And most, uh, people used it to expand their house, make another room or to make porch. The, those are uh, some of the things people people would do, and these are mostly uh, not detached. They're d- duplexes, triplexes, and uh, the most recent mo- models are uh, four four story building uh, buildings, uh, which mm. uh, you can get certain economies from sharing the walls and the and the, the slabs. The ceiling slabs, and but you don't need uh, an elevator still. So yeah, that's that's kind of the idea. The if you can, and I I'm curious. You know, I, I wanted to ground this a little bit in like relative to what, and, and I didn't ask this yet. So, but I just wanted you know something I'm thinking about is these homes are very small. They're inadequate in many ways, but like lots of people are buying them, and so is it fair to say that it is a significant improvement over people's living situations, kind of their alternatives, or is that not really the case and it's more they're kind of being pushed into these types of living arrangements? Well, you would have to evaluate it by comparing uh, their incremental housing and maybe incremental housing over the long run has, you have a bigger house, a bigger lot, and uh, bigger spaces, mm-hmm. but you also have to go through all this time of uncertainty and of manipulation and of regulation, you know, regulating and getting your your land security. Yeah, like you don't you don't own the property probably in most of those cases until until the government or until you can access one of the government's uh, regularization programs. Mm. So you to sort of be moved into the formal housing market. Yeah, and this is a long process. And over the years, you might be living in a little shack that that's improvised, and it's uh, so so. It's I don't I don't have the elements right now to compare them. It's 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 trade offs all the yeah. way down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a great question. I mean, I once wanted to do a study. There's a there's a develop a formal development of of social interest housing called El Refugio in like East TJ, and then across the boulevard, there's an in- incremental neighborhood called Rancho El Refugio, and it's like okay, the lots are a thousand square feet instead of six hundred square feet. But like you said, you know, you're without the without the mortgage to 
build the house in the beginning and pay it off over time, you're going to be living in something much more temporary in the beginning and slowly adding onto it over time and then eventually getting infrastructure and running water installed maybe at a later date, right? So it's, it is, I'm not sure kind of what the present value comparison would be of the two, um, but I don't think probably most people are thinking about it in that way either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, it, and it's, it, it's going to be different from, for every development, depending on its location and different characteristics. And but yeah, I guess just a final kind of relativity question. You know, the one director of Infonavit at a conference in San Diego once said, like, you know, everyone used to complain about the slums that were people were living in, and now they're complaining about these new houses being tiny. But like, I think that's a better problem to have than than slum conditions. So I don't know. From the federal perspective, I think you know this idea of a modern formal development is is more attractive than what what people had been building on their own before. But I think from the household perspective, you know, the informal sector offers something more customized and maybe in a better location. Mm -hmm. And it's probably also cheaper for the government. I mean, informal housing, you have to provide the infrastructure, provide the different programs to make it, to to adequate it, to make it Mm -hmm. better. So in the end run, you just uh, transfer those costs to the person's buying it. Mm-hmm. This kind of reminds me of our, our conversation with Hayden Shelby and her work in slum upgrading mm-hmm. in Bangkok and sort of the, the trade-offs there. So I want to tie this to, you know, what this means for policy a little bit and what we can take away from this. And I had a few questions about this, but I might just sort of combine them. This is, this paper is looking at things in a suburban context, but uh, and, and I'm curious to hear, you know, what might be the takeaways in that context, because we do build a lot of suburban housing still in in the US. And that's, I don't think going to change anytime soon. But also thinking about how this can apply to more of an urban context, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of reminded of how developers here in LA and a lot of other places, they often say it takes basically the same amount of work to build a 300 unit building versus a 20 unit one. In either case, you got to hire a bunch of people to design it, to get it approved through the city. You'll have probably a similar number of people managing the project and doing a lot of the same things like setting up a staging area, pouring a foundation, all that. The things you have to do may be bigger and more numerous, but it's qualitatively pretty similar. Modular and prefabricated construction are some efforts to bring economies of scale to some of that process, but it seems like that can maybe only take us so far. So on both the suburban side and the urban side, and, you know, pose this to both of you, I'm just curious for your reflections on what lessons we might draw from this and like, how can this knowledge of the economies of scale and the production inputs and everything help us build housing more affordably? Well, I believe that if government really has the intention of of really digging into this, we can think of offsetting production diseconomies through government subsidies, you know? <clears throat> and this could be in different forms. This may be even, uh, this could even be in the form of land and other production incentives. And uh, here is where we might encounter like uh, a couple of problems in, in the Mexican experience, you know? First, for over the 20 some years that these 
well, 30 some years that these policies have been in place. The land, there has no, been no clear land strategy on the on behalf of the governments, leaving developers to amass their own land reserves. So it's really hard now to get land in cities with really these hot real estate markets. And mm-hmm. it's, this is a problem because it's mostly in the hands of private companies. And uh, also, we can say that local governments, such as states, state and municipal governments, have land they acquire through donations. In Tijuana, for, for example, developers donate 10% of the total sellable area to the municipality. Mm. In addition, this in addition to allotting the public parks and schools and whatnot. And also, informal developments, when they go through the regular regularization process, they also donate land to the state government. So these donations could be used to promote infill developments at maybe reasonable prices, but the local governments sometimes sell these lots either to the developers or the other or other uh, entrepreneurs. But there's a very lack lacking in transparency in how, what happens to these plots. So we have to really think of how uh, we're going to produce this infield de- development. Bear in mind that uh, the type of production that we, we assessed is almost gone. And we have a positive, uh, something positive that did come out of this, that is that companies rescaled uh, after the, the housing bubble. And these companies, uh, when they shrunk, they have also reorganized. They have better business models. They have used production efficiencies in other way. For example, mm-hmm. they build a four-story social housing project by renting the concrete casings. They don't buy them anymore. Mm-hmm. Or they subcontract specialized workforce for different tasks. They, they're not these big, enormously big companies. They, they, they've shrunk. And also, these subcontractors compete on the basis of efficiency and price, which is something developers do in different parts of the world. So you're no longer building the hundreds of homes right up off the bat. So we need to learn how to use those efficiencies in ways that we can do the infill development. Mm -hmm. It's kind of reminding me of how you know, something that's been pointed out as a, I think, a flaw in our approach to housing development in the U.S. is just how cyclical things are and how dependent on the business cycle it is where you just build a lot of housing some years and, and no housing almost other years. And you're kind of uh, building oftentimes when prices are highest or buying land when prices are highest. But it's also just not very good for, I think, the the industry and the workers themselves, where it's kind of feast or famine. Sometimes there's lots of jobs. Other times there's just nothing going on. And it does seem like maybe having more small scale, consistent uh, support for these kind of things can be one part of the solution. Yes, I agree with that. Pavo, I, I don't know if you've been thinking about this much lately, but I've been I, I was asking about this on on Twitter actually recently about kind of the role of public land in development and how, you know, in the U.S., and it sounds like maybe this is similar in Mexico where most land is privately owned and that includes most land that gets developed, whereas in a lot of European countries and and other parts of the world, a lot of the the housing development that happens is basically 
the government auctioning off its land or developing something on it itself or even buying land for the purpose of finding someone to develop on it. It just seems like a very different approach. And when we leave it all to just kind of the the market to see what turns over, what gets sold at any given time, and we have no control over that, it seems like we're it's its own obstacle to to building the housing that we need. Yeah, I mean, I think one notable thing about the Hong Kong housing strategy is that it has a long-term, that it has one, a long-term housing <laughs> strategy, right? And, you know, so they, they do get tons of economies of scale by, by building dense housing, but also by having public investment in housing production. Like you said, it's a counter-cyclical process. I mean, theirs is just consistent. It's not even necessarily counter-cyclical, but by mm-hmm. having a certain certainty about the future of where you're going to build and what you're going to build, then you can maximize the production efficiencies within that certain path forward, right? And it's, yeah. a, it's a thing that we definitely do the opposite of in our governance of housing production in, in the U.S. <laughs> I mean, it, if you just think about like, it's not as though people stop having children, as though people stop wanting to form households just because, you know, the economy is not quite as strong this year as that year. And yet that's how we build housing. It's just it follows the economy rather than the actual demographics or, or yeah. needs. Yeah. Right. Well, I think we're, we're running out of time here, but Dinora, is there anything we missed here? Anything you want to share or key takeaways or anything like that from the paper that you want to make sure we cover before we go? Maybe we can talk about the perimeters of contención urbana, urban containment perimeters. And this is a, a very interesting way of looking at the, how the uh, public policy does not or did not understand uh, housing supply or house, uh, how uh, low-income housing supply is restricted. They, when this whole housing debacle really unfolded, they tried to uh, pull back on the subsidies and tried to specifically allocate them to better locations, right? Mm-hmm. So the CPUs were these buffers that the federal housing agencies drew around the cities and around urban corridors to prioritize these subsidy allocation and in order to procure these more socially equitable conditions. And they kind of functioned or they wanted them to function like a subsidy incentive. For example, in 2016, a uh, home buyer you could receive like uh, around $500 or to $1,500 in more in a federal subsidy when you bought a home within these boundaries. The thing is that it was difficult to find a cheap home located within, within these boundaries, right? So if we look at this with the knowledge that production economies are imperative for low-cost housing production, we can say that the incentive was not nearly enough to offset the higher cost of building small amounts of housing in land that is considerably more expensive, right? And that's how we can give a better picture of what housing policy or how this helps us figure out what is not working within housing policy. This story, I think, really highlights the trade-offs in housing policy, right? And how we it, it illustrates you can build housing really inexpensively. It's just uh, maybe not what what people want other people to live in, right? I think there's this this problem we have in the U.S. of 
excessive minimum standards for housing, um, you know, and maybe we don't want to go to 600 square foot lots and 400 square foot houses, but I don't know. I mean, a lot of people in the world live in those conditions and they're doing fine. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the, the story is really illustrative also of the the benefits of scale economies and, and thinking about how we can translate some of that experience to the U.S. And I think if you do want to establish these minimum standards, which I think there's good reason to want to do, you actually have to put the resources behind these things. You can't just say, well, now these cheapest types of homes are illegal to build. We're going to require that they be larger and, and so forth, but we're not going to help you pay for them. And in that case, I think, you know, we've seen this with like boarding houses and single room occupancy hotels right. and things like that in the U.S. where we took away this sort of housing of last resort option, but we didn't replace it with anything. And, you know, we saw that, you know, had negative impacts on homelessness and that kind of thing. Um, it seems like the Mexican approach here, they kind of, you know, set some minimum standards, not super aggressive ones, but they also did really try to make sure that the demand was there and that they, you know, they worked with the developers to figure out how how to feasibly actually yeah. build this housing, right. not just <laughs> demand it and then see what happens. Yeah. Yeah, no. And that that partnership, I mean, I think, you know, the... The Mexican case has a lot of problems, and I recommend reading Rick Morosi's sensational expose of all the fraud. And you know, but I think that that doesn't mean that it's it's not a good idea to collaborate between home builders and government financing. Mm -hmm. Yes, and it's needed. It's needed to give more opportunities uh, to lower income families uh, to mm -hmm. find housing. It's it's one of the options. We shouldn't take away options from them. We should give them more. Right. Yeah. I think that's a great place to end. Dinora Gonzalez, thank you so much for joining today. Thank you so much, Shane. Thank you so much, Pablo. It was a very interesting conversation. Now let's let's go to Playas. Let's go to Playas. <laughs> let's go have some tacos break. <laughs> <laughs> See you there. See you. You can read more about Dr. Gonzalez's research and find our show notes and a transcript of the interview at our website, lewis.ucla.edu. The UCLA Lewis Center is on Facebook and Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Shane D. Phillips, and Pavo is at El Pavo. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.